six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Douglas Haynes and I'll be your host for this hour. Deep in the dog days of summer, we're going to talk today about heath heat and its impacts on human health. This year, no continent has escaped extreme temperatures. While recent heat waves in the Pacific Northwest and Europe have made headlines, China, South Asia, and North Africa have also suffered prolonged record heat. Earlier this year, South America and even Antarctica set high temperature records. Closer to home, heat kills more people in Wisconsin than all other forms of extreme weather combined. The dangers of heat are exacerbated by poverty, social isolation, and urbanization. And the warming climate is making hot days and nights occur more frequently and last for longer periods. By 2050, the number of days exceeding 90 degrees in Wisconsin is projected to increase between 10 and 28 days. What does all this mean for our daily lives? How can we reduce the impacts of increasing heat waves on human health? And how might we design our cities and homes to make them more livable in a hotter world? To explore answers to these questions and more, we'll gather both international and local perspectives from two guests today. Our first guest is Rodrigo Perez Ortega, a staff writer for Science Magazine based in Mexico City. His recent article, Extreme Temperatures in Major Latin American Cities Could Be Linked to Nearly One Million Deaths, describes the most detailed study of extreme heat's health impacts in Latin America to date. In the second half of the hour, Dr. Larry Kalkstein, president of Applied Climatologists, Inc., will join us to talk about how he and his collaborators at the Wisconsin Heat Health Network are developing a heat wave ranking system in Dane County and Milwaukee County to help mitigate the health impacts of extreme heat. But first, Rodrigo Perez Ortega, welcome to A Public Affair. Thanks for being here, Rodrigo. Hi, Douglas. Thanks for the invite. It's great to have you and welcome listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question or would like to share a perspective about how extreme heat is impacting you or your community or people you know, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, Rodrigo, I'd love to get started today by having you tell us what grabbed your attention about this recent study on extreme temperatures in Latin America that you reported on uh, in June for Science Magazine. Right. Well, yes, I saw this study coming up uh, that was going to be published at the time of Nature Medicine uh, about extreme temperatures and mortality in Latin American cities, right? So it it, it immediately hit a nerve in me because, you know, I, I, I live in Mexico City and I, I always say to my friends in the in the U.S. and, and other places that, um, you know, Mexico City has the perfect weather. It's never too, too cold or too hot. Uh, but in recent years, that's been that's been changing. <laughs> you know, uh, I I've in my house, I've never had to use a fan or heating, uh, but in the past day, in the past years, like two years ago, I had to get a fan, uh, you know, to just survive the day and the night uh, to be able to sleep well. And um, 
So it immediately here and there, uh, it hit home. And uh, I, I like this study because most of the studies that have been uh, done before, they focus on other regions of the world, mainly the US, Canada, or Europe, right? Um, so I like this study because it, it links, it shows you right in the face how extreme heat and cold can impact human health, including, you know, deaths. Um, um, you know, you have some of the factors uh, that from Latin America is that it's a highly urbanized region, right? So most of the population lives in cities uh, as opposed to other other regions that they, a lot of them, you know, live in the country or have smaller cities. Uh, that doesn't happen in Latin America. So, uh, and you know, from previous research, we know that um, extreme temperatures, especially heat, uh, it will um, it will be increased in cities. You know, you have this effect called the, the urban heat uh, effect that basically uh, because of construction, housing, and or lack of green spaces uh, makes the weather hotter in cities, especially uh, within cities in certain parts with, you know, like as you mentioned, uh, they have to do with uh, with uh, marginalized communities, you know, people living in in, the, in a lot of buildings with less uh, green spaces or parks around. Uh, so, you know, it's something that uh, needs, more, needs more attention now. Yeah, and what were the most startling findings for you, Rodrigo, from the recent study? Well, first, uh, that, you know, <laughs> researchers, so they basically uh, track the weather uh, ranges uh, or the temperature ranges for uh, a lot of, uh, you know, more than 300 Latin American cities uh, and establish, you know, the range. And, and then they took, okay, what, what were the hottest days and the coldest days and how many people died on those days? So they went also to, to that registry from each city. And, and they found that uh, in a little over a decade, uh, a lot, uh, you know, nearly one million deaths could be linked to extreme heat. So that's extreme cold and extreme, um, extreme heat. Uh, you know, and that's a lot. <laughs> and uh, it's so it's hard to to link deaths to extreme temperatures because, you know, when somebody dies, the doctors they don't they don't say, oh, this person died of extreme heat, you know, or extreme cold. Uh, there are other causes, you know. Uh, extreme cold, um, it causes your your heart to pump more blood. Uh, sorry, extreme heat makes your heart pump more blood, and it causes the dehydration and pulmonary stress. So that's what's shown, you know, on the, the certificates. And extreme cold, on the other hand, makes your heart pump uh, less blood and cause hypotension and in some cases organ failure, right? But there's other causes of that, you know, uh, when I was researching this, I found that uh, many people drown during heat waves because they are trying to refresh themselves, right? So, um, and of course that that's linked to extreme heat, but uh, it's not on death certificate. So that's why it's really hard to, you know, pinpoint or link certain deaths to extreme temperature. Also you have during cold days or uh, you have the respiratory infections, uh, right? Uh, so there's many reasons, but this study really 
provides a lot of the data needed for to empower uh, local authorities to do uh, to do th you know to put policy in place or to be ready basically and and shows that you know, you know this is alarming. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, how local authorities are responding or what some of the recommendations of the study are. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the slight increases in temperature that can increase mortality? I was struck by the lead author of the study saying it's very alarming how quickly the risk of mortality increases at hot temperatures by even one degree Celsius. Um, so what can you explain just how this little tiny increase that's, that seems tiny right. might have such a huge impact on mortality? Right. So uh, they found out for certain Latin American cities, uh, you know, like like Rio de Janeiro and Merida and others that, uh, you know, their temperatures rise above, you know, the triple digits in Fahrenheit, you know. So that's a lot. And uh, they found that, you know, there are in general over the, the, the year, there's more cold days. Uh, and you know you can anticipate that because of the of the of the seasons, but during heat waves, you know they are very sudden, right? So uh, one of the researchers I talked in based in Buenos Aires, uh, she has been studying uh, Rosana Brutsky. She has been studying heat waves in in Buenos Aires, for example. Uh, they had a major heat wave earlier this year in January in their summer, and 50, 50 of uh, of the cities in Argentina reached. Uh, more than 40 degrees Celsius, which is a hundred and four. Yeah, so that's a lot. And uh, she was telling me it's really hard to escape uh, extreme heat because it's very sudden, you know, it changes from one day to the other. Uh, so one of, one of the things they're doing is uh, to, to try to predict that uh, and the, the citizens, but also health services to be prepared um, for you know, and uh, and I think so, so. Yeah, that's although there are more cold days during the days, the heat is the one that kills more uh, because of some of the the things we have already talked about. Yeah, we have uh, a question from a listener now, um, Rodrigo, uh, who's wondering about um, how extreme heat in central. And South America or Latin America more broadly is linked to migration. So it's something that's increasingly being studied and talked about. Uh, wondering if you have a, a perspective on that. Well, yeah, some some of the things that we talked earlier, uh, you know, a lot of because of inequalities and poverty in Latin America uh, countries, a lot of people uh, still migrate from the country to the cities to look for jobs, right? And they're coming to live in, you know, uh, very tiny spaces, high buildings, uh, or some of the cities, you know, they, they because of this migration to cities, they they have uh, grown a lot without a lot of planning, right? So then you you end up with these highly packed areas of the city with little green spaces, uh, with you know, as one of the researchers uh, told me. Um, Ana Diaz Rue, one of the um, study authors, told me, you know, for many people in Latin America, heating or air conditioning, is, air conditioning is a luxury. I myself, you know, I don't have air conditioning in my house because 
I've never needed it. I associate her uh, air conditioning to the beach or somewhere really hot. But uh, now I'm planning on getting one maybe for the next years, right? You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking about extreme heat and human health with journalist Rodrigo Perez Ortega and uh, later on in the program, climatologist Larry Kalkstein. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or a mess or message a public affair on Facebook. Rodrigo, I'd like to um, talk uh, a little bit more about specific groups of people and how they're impacted by extreme heat in Latin America. Can you talk about outdoor work and heat specifically and what kinds of workers are most at risk from hotter days and heat waves? Right. So one of the, when I talked to the researchers, uh, they told me, you know, uh, these early warnings for heat waves, you know, uh, are more most useful to uh, certain professions that require people to work outdoors during the, like, noon, 1 p.m. when, when you know, it's the peak of the the heat during the day, so you know, construction workers, uh, basically people that require to like go outdoors and spend spend all day in the in the sun, uh, you know, farmers as well. So uh, it's just these early warnings that they're developing in Argentina and uh, well in Buenos Aires, and now they're extending to the whole country. Really help, you know, uh, recommend people. Hey, try to work in hours that are not the the, the the heat peak or um or you know drink a lot of water be on the shade uh things like that so uh yeah there are certain professions that uh that are at risk i say yeah and um you mentioned also certain parts of cities and i'd like us to unpack a little bit more about inequality and the role of inequality in heat-related health issues and, and death in particular, um, because as you mentioned, Latin America has high levels of inequality and it's a, a particularly urbanized uh, region. Um, what particular groups are most being impacted by heat and heat waves in Latin America already, according to this study and your other research? Well, this study didn't really get at that. Uh, but the researchers are working on it, you know, to untangle these, uh, how these heat waves or extreme temperatures also cause, you know, impact differently uh, depending on the region of the city. Uh, you know, from other from other studies that are currently underway, for example, in New York, uh, people, researchers know that, uh, for example, Bru certain parts of Brooklyn are hotter than in Manhattan, you know, and that's because of poor city planning, uh, there is less space for people to go to parks and refresh. Uh, high, you know, high density population in certain areas, uh, and uh, you know, of course, air conditioning, um, you know, access to pools, things like that. Uh, and you know, coincidentally, I mean, it's no surprise that the people more affected are the poor, right, and uh, marginalized communities. I believe the study also mentioned um, older adults, especially vulnerable to extreme temperatures as well. Right. So that's uh, the researchers also found, uh, you know, overall uh, in the cities, 
Um, so, you know, for instance, uh, in 2015, more than 16,000 deaths uh, were recorded among people ages 65 or older. Uh, those were attributed, uh, attributed to extreme temperatures. Um, and that's a lot, you know. Uh, older adults, you know, physiologically are more uh, vulnerable to extreme temperatures. 7.5% uh, of deaths uh, among, um, um, during this period, the study period, uh, were correlated to extreme deaths uh, among older adults. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it not only impacts, you know, marginalized communities, but also older adults, and, um, and that's something to look at as well. Yeah, so in this study, which was, uh, as you said, in published in um, Nature Medicine, um, that you wrote the article, Extreme Temperatures in Major Latin American Cities Could Be Linked to Nearly One Million Deaths. What's their outlook um, for the future, or, or what kind of foundation does this study build for, for future work and concerns? Right. So uh, the research team, uh, who are from Drexel University, by the way, uh, they're looking at, you know, with this data, they are doing estimates for the future uh, based on climate change scenarios, which we know, you know, are impacting uh, all the world. And they're hoping, you know, to to raise awareness of this, that this is going to get um, worse, basically. So. Uh, there's going to be less cold days and more hot days. Uh, so, you know, the temperature range of each city is going to shift eventually. And, and, you know, a lot of these mitigation policies or actions uh, that can counteract all these deaths linked to extreme temperature are, all, are mostly the same to counteract climate change in cities, you know. So I think, uh, again, like the, all these data which is like the first uh, the first data for certain cities, you know, uh, smaller cities, uh, they hope they can empower local authorities and politicians and, you know, institutions to take action uh, to mitigate uh, this, this mortality. Were there any particular cities uh, that were mentioned in the study or from your own experience or research that uh, have struck you either with the impacts that they're experiencing from extreme heat or ways that they're approaching dealing with it? Uh, yeah, well, I, I focused on this in, in more in Argentina and Buenos Aires because I knew there was a heat wave. There was a big heat wave in 2013, and one of the researchers that I talked to, you know, uh, they studied this heat wave, and, and they found that the daily deaths increased by... 43%, so almost doubled, you know, during the heat wave. Um, and they had, they just had now one in January. Uh, and yeah, Buenos Aires, one of the, uh, Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, was one of the cities they, uh, the researchers of this new study found that uh, had a lot of impact with extreme heat. Uh, you know, also Rio de Janeiro, Merida in the Yucatan Peninsula. So these are uh, cities, of course, cities in the border in Mexico, in northern Mexico, like Mexicali, uh, they are very well known for to reach extreme temperatures uh, in the summer as well. So, uh, but it's just in general, it's just shocking to see how many cities, uh, you know, even the smaller cities, uh, are impacted by this. 
Definitely. It looks like we do have a caller on the line, Rodrigo. Um, we're going to go ahead and take a call from Mateo. Uh, go ahead, Mateo. You're on the air. Hi there. Um, I, I was uh, wondering, you know, since air temperature is always recorded when it's in the shade, wouldn't it make wouldn't people have a better understanding of how hot it is if they also gave the temperature when you're standing in the sun? Right. So the study, what they did basically was, uh, you know, they gathered the uh, the estimated temperature range for each city from a public data set of atmospheric conditions. Right. So it was not measured uh, locally. It was, I think, satellite measurements. And that way they could uh, they could record the, the the temperature for all of these cities. Right. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, it is an average, right? So it's not, you know, during this, the, the the shade or not. It's just an average. Uh, of course, it's really hard to to do this for for uh, in this way for every city. But I think the next step, you're right, is just to to confirm this uh, locally for each city. You know, looking more closely at uh, the the local temperatures, how they change and how that impacts uh, the dead registries. Thanks, Mateo, for that question. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with journalist Rodrigo Perez Ortega uh, about extreme heat and human health. He published recently an article in Science Magazine called Extreme Temperatures in Major Latin American Cities Could Be Linked to Nearly one million deaths. We just have a few minutes with you, Rodrigo, before we transition to uh, a Wisconsin perspective on this issue. Um, would you be willing to give us kind of a personal perspective on both your experience of extreme heat in uh, Mexico these days and, and whether or not it's in the media, whether this is something that people are increasingly focused on and, and trying to deal with? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think it's boring the media, you know, extreme, uh, especially in the summer, extreme temperatures elsewhere. Like, you know, you're hearing about uh, Australia, you're hearing about uh, Europe, for example, right now, you know. So our uh, our summer is not that hot uh, because we have a lot of rain that brings temperature down. Uh, actually, our driest season is spring and hottest as well. So you know, like I said, some eight years ago, it was never an issue for me or anyone really. But like now <laughs> I remember this past May or, or April, it was just like uh, like talking with friends is like, oh, I can't stand this heat, you know. Uh, luckily, I don't have to, to, to work outdoors. You know, I, I work in my office. But even here, it gets really hot. Uh, sometimes for some interviews, I have to shut down. My, my windows because there's cons construction work outside, uh, shut my door, and then it gets really, really hot. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, definitely something that, that, you, that you, you experience or I've been experiencing for the past um, years. And, and, yeah, I'm preparing, you know, like I said, I'm <laughs> thinking of buying a, a, an air conditioning. Um, so, yeah, it's something that, that – that impacts, uh, and you definitely, you definitely feel it. And do you have a sense of is there much political will 
to address the issue in particular in, in urban areas there in Mexico or elsewhere in Latin America? Well, sadly, at least in Mexico City, I haven't I haven't seen any debate about it. You know, it's something we feel, but uh, there's I think we are we're lagging behind on putting uh, climate change mitigations in place. Uh, definitely, uh, urban planning should be paramount uh, and improving, you know, this these uh, some regions of the city that um, have a high density, you know, to try to improve them. And, and of course, Mexico City is still it's still going to grow whether we like it or not. So we really need to put city planning in place to to try to avoid more more urban heat uh, islands. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us today, Rodrigo. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I've been talking about extreme heat and human health in Latin America with uh, science writer Rodrigo Perez Ortega, who's a staff writer for Science Magazine. His recent article, Extreme Temperatures in Major Latin American Cities Could Be Linked to Nearly One Million Deaths, was based on a study at Drexel University, and his article came out in June. And uh, it was great to have your perspective uh, from uh, Mexico City uh, with us today. Rodrigo, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for the invite and allowing me to talk about this, um, this new study. All right. Take care, Rodrigo. We're going to transition now to focus on heat in Wisconsin with climatologist Dr. Larry Kalkstein, president of Applied Climatologists, Inc. And he's going to tell us about the Wisconsin Heat Health Network and their efforts to help reduce the health impacts of extreme heat here in Wisconsin, working in Dane County and Milwaukee County in particular. Uh, thank you for joining us on A Public Affair, Larry. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Doug. It's good to be here. Well, let's uh, start, Larry, with giving us a brief overview of what we know about heat waves in southern Wisconsin today and the outlook for the coming decades in particular. Sure. Well, uh, Wisconsin is a quite vulnerable area in terms of heat and health. Uh, it's not because Wisconsin is among our hottest areas. Uh, it's because of the variability of the climate in Wisconsin. And it turns out that places that have irregular and intense heat events are the ones that are most vulnerable to heat-related illness and death. And unfortunately, Wisconsin is perfect for that. Your summer temperatures may be in the 70s or low 80s, getting down to the low 60s at night, and suddenly you get a heat wave where it goes up in the mid to upper 90s or even touch 100 with high overnight temperatures. That's what kills people. And this is why more people die of the heat in places in Wisconsin than they do where I live, which is in South Florida, where every day is almost exactly the same in the summer. It's hot, but our urban structure, our life livability, and everything else is adjusted to heat. You are not so adjusted up there. So tell us a little bit more, Larry, in those extreme heat events, how the heat waves impact people and who is impacted the most? Sure. Um, generally, what happens is we need good warnings, and this is why we are emphasizing uh, heat warning systems. And I'm working with the Wisconsin Health Network and the Department of Health in Wisconsin to make sure we have better warnings. 
because people think that they are immune to the problems of heat. Uh, in general, people think that this is uh, really not a major problem because you don't see damage like you do after a hurricane or a tornado or whatever. Uh, when 800 plus people died in Chicago in the 1990s, Chicago looked exactly the same after the heat wave as it looked in the beginning of the heat wave, except there were 900 less people around. And so people think that they are not vulnerable. But as your previous speaker said, um, it is the elderly, the homeless, alcoholics, um, people who are drug dependent, um, people who are outdoor workers, um, obese people, and the disadvantaged who don't have access to air-conditioned space that are the most vulnerable to heat-related problems. Can you tell us a little bit more in particular about those, uh, the ways uh, heat impacts those disadvantaged populations, or even people who might not see themselves necessarily as disadvantaged in, in places like Madison and Milwaukee, who are renters, for example, who are in old buildings, or like you said, don't have access to air conditioning? Um, what, what happens when an when a heat extreme heat event plays out in those kinds of situations? Yeah, and mostly uh, it's due to dehydration. People don't hydrate enough. And so what happens is that people don't understand uh, that really they're being negatively affected by heat. And so they may just continue with their regular activities and they don't pay much attention to it. Uh, one of the chief things I always tell people, if you feel the least bit uncomfortable, well, almost everyone has a bathtub or a shower, put cool water in it and just sit in it and have a drink of water and you'll be fine if you do that occasionally. But unfortunately, we're all the same. We go to our day-to-day -day business, you're in a hot apartment, you're outside and you just keep working and you don't think about it because uh, heat is a bit of a sneaky uh, attacker and you really don't know that you're being overcome. Uh, in Philadelphia, I used to talk to the medical examiner. We did a lot of work with Philadelphia and people would have indoor fans. They'd be in an apartment that's 90 degrees plus and they'd be sitting in an indoor fan and the medical examiner would see that person face down dead in front of the fan because even though it felt cooler, it was removing moisture from the person's body. They were losing moisture very rapidly and they died of either a, a cardiac arrest or some other respiratory failure or whatever right in front of their fan. So this is a common problem. Uh, Elderly people, I've, I've heard stories where by mistake, instead of turning on the air conditioning, they turn on the heat, um, maybe because their vision wasn't so good or whatever. All of these things can contribute. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Larry Kalkstein, uh, who is uh, president of Applied Climatologists, Inc., and he's also working on a really interesting heat wave ranking system, which we'll talk about here shortly. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or reach out to a public affair on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. So, Larry, you're the chief heat science advisor for the Arch Rockefeller Foundation's Resilience Center. Tell us about this heat wave ranking system you're working on there and how it has been and could be helpful and how it's being applied. 
Sure. Um, we think that most heat wave warnings are given based on meteorology alone. And um, both this and, of course, I also want to talk about the heat wave warning system that we've developed through a CDC grant with the state of Wisconsin. Uh, but I'll get to that in a second. We want to develop a system that is based on an outcome rather than just meteorology, that outcome being negative health. In other words, we have a way of determining what weather is going to create a condition where people's health is going to decline. Either we're going to have more uh, illnesses, emergency room visits, or deaths. And so the ranking system and our heat health warning system that we developed for the state of Wisconsin are both based on the premise that we want to call warnings and advisories when people's health is being compromised. The ranking system goes one step further and it is now working in two European cities. It is up and running and being used actively in Seville, Spain and in Athens, Greece. And we rank heat waves on three levels, much like you might a hurricane. Um, level one, it's already bad. People are beginning to die from the heat. But then we have level two and level three and level three is the worst. It would be like a category five hurricane in terms of a major impact because that's when the maximum number of people for that area are expected to die or to get sick from the heat wave. So we think it would help stakeholders to understand how to rank heat waves along with just a warning because then the stakeholders could know what interventions they should do for level ones, two and three. Now in Wisconsin, we have also developed a system that is based on human health outcomes, a heat health watch warning system that I'm working with with our Wisconsin Heat Health Network and my colleagues in the Department of Health in Wisconsin. It was funded by the CDC. And we are using this as a pilot study for the National Weather Service in Sullivan, Wisconsin to give them some guidance uh, as to more guidance as to when they should call heat advisories and heat warnings. And it's based on a similar premise. We don't rank the heat waves, but instead what we're doing is telling them that conditions are such that we expect many people to get sick and die. And we are giving them guidance as to, they use all kinds of other things as well at the weather service as to when they could possibly or should call an excessive heat warning. This is really interesting stuff and encouraging to hear that it's been being developed on these these big scales. Um, we have a couple of callers uh, who are interested in talking with you, Larry. We have, first of all, Thomas on the line. Go ahead, uh, Thomas. You're on a public affair. Uh, yes, thank you for the program. My question is, the first question is, uh, when there is a heat wave or a heat warning, what can an individual do to reduce their own temperature, I assume sitting in cold water or using ice and so forth uh, will help. The second question is how does an individual determine that they are getting overheated? I think a lot of times people don't uh, understand that they're getting overheated until it's too late. And I'll hang up and listen to your answers and thank you for the program. Sure. Good questions, Thomas. The first one is immediately take a drink. Start drinking. Drink more than you think you should. Eat pieces of fruit. Whatever gets moisture into your body, you want to do. Now, I don't prescribe you sit in ice water. You don't have to do that. You can sit in room temperature water, not maybe 95 degrees, but 75 degrees, the water you would get out of the cold water tap. No sense in torturing yourself. 
but that will be below your body core temperature anyway. So if you take a book, sit in a bathtub, read a little bit, drink a little bit, get yourself cool, and then you can go out, that's fine. And by the way, when you leave the bathtub, water is evaporating from your body. And evap you notice whenever you get out of a pool or out of a tub, it feels cooler on you. That's because evaporation is a process of taking heat away from the human body. And it is a very important process that keeps us cool. That's why we sweat. So going into the tub and getting out of the tub, you are losing heat from the body because of evaporation. So that is what I would recommend. And of course, if you sit at air conditioning, if, if you don't have air conditioning, go to a mall, take a bus ride, go to a library, go to a place that is air conditioned, just get yourself out of the heat, whether it's hot and humid or it's hot and dry. Um, your second question is, how do you know when you're being overcome by heat? And that is a more difficult question. I mean, usually people start feeling dizzy, uh, disoriented, and so on. And um, in many cities now, they have a heat line where you can call a specialist individually, uh, an 800 number, and they will. you could say to them, well, you know, I'm really feeling not myself, and they will tell you what to do and how to do it within the confines of your own home. But usually the first symptom is a, a feeling of disorientation or dizziness. You don't just suddenly get a heart attack or a stroke or a respiratory failure. But as long as you continue to drink constantly to allow your body to produce sweat, to keep your body cool and try to stay in a cool environment, um, you can get even beyond those first symptoms. They're not going to happen to you. Uh, ma many vulnerable people are outdoor workers. Uh, I remember even in Little League games, when my son was playing Little League, we lived in Delaware at the time. Uh, one time they took a fire hose. It was 90 degrees out. Which they shouldn't have been playing at all. And they sprayed all the kids with a water hose to cool them down. And you know what? It's actually a good idea. They were a little wet out in the field, but it was enough to cool them off. So all of those things help. Thanks, Larry. Uh, super helpful suggestions. We have another call uh, from Matthew. Matthew, you're on the air on A Public Affair. Thank you. Um, given that the air temperature is always measured in the shade, and for instance, uh, when my uh, porch is in the shade, it's 85. When the sun hits it in the afternoon, it reads 114. Isn't that air temperature uh, accurate? And then I, the second question is, isn't that the reason people overheat is because they have no concept of what the temperature is in the sun since the heat index and the air temperature are by law done in the shade. Yeah, I heard that question asked to the previous speaker as well. Um, first of all, they're measured in the shade to standardize it. Actually, um, the National Weather Service and even people who are weather service observers measure the temperature at a particular height and have a particular kind of shelter. And then they're measured at thousands of places around the country. But they're measured in the shade for standardization. Uh, it seems easy. Why don't you just put a thermometer in the sun? Well, at what height? If you're in the sun above a grassy surface or above a concrete surface, you're going to have a different reading. By the way, why don't we just put the thermometer on the concrete surface and it's going to read 130. So the problem with sunshine measurements is the lack of standardization. And I would like to think 
that most people know that if it's 95 degrees in the shade, that it's going to be well over 100 in terms of your apparent temperature on your human body in the sun. And by the way, even the heat index is measured in the shade. When you hear the meteorologists say the heat index is 98, that's also a shade temperature. So there's a lack of standardization and measuring in the sun is so variable that it's really hard to be able to get a good measurement because of that. But be assured that if it's 95 or up, in the sun, it's well over 100, and at least your human body is perceiving it as well over 100. Thank you for the call, Matthew. Um, I want to follow up on that, Larry, and ask you about the concept of the wet bulb temperature. A lot of times when we read about the impacts of heat on the human body, um, we hear this term referred to. Could you explain it for us and why it's so important to understand? Sure, the wet bulb global temperature is a measurement that takes a lot of variables into account, including solar radiation income um, and humidity and temperature and other factors as well. So it is commonly used uh, to measure a relative, a relative measurement of how uncomfortable it is. The reason it is not used more and you don't hear it on the weather service reports or we don't even use it ourselves is because of the lack of solar radiation measurements. I mean, you need solar radiation as an input to get this wet bulb global temperature. So you don't hear it because of that. And thus we rely on what we call a parent temperature, which is a temperature which we use in our heat warning systems that include temperature, humidity and wind speed. And wind speed is important because it's a desiccating factor. Uh, the windier, below, you know, you've heard of wind chill. If it's minus five degrees out, the wind makes it feel colder. Anywhere above 86, the wind makes it feel warmer. And so if it's 95 or 98 degrees and you are in a windier environment, the apparent temperature is going to go up instead of down. Think of a convection oven. Uh, why do things cook quicker in a convection oven? It's because it has a fan in it. The idea that wind or a breeze is blowing on the food is going to cook it faster. Uh, we're not exactly being cooked in hot weather, but it's a similar convection activity. So you know what the wet bulb global temperature is. You know why it's not used because of the difficulty of obtaining some of the data. And we try to do the best with apparent temperature, which includes temperature, humidity, and wind speed. And by the way, the more complicated you make these things, the less likely they are to be utilitarian. That's another reason. We can make it complicated. We can put invisibility and pollution and all kinds of other variables and make it really complicated. How usable is it going to be? We don't have that many measurements for these different things. So the idea is to make it simple yet better than anything that we have thus far. And so what are the tangible impacts so far that you're seeing of the, the heat ranking systems and the health warning systems and, and how they're being applied? Well, in, in our European cities, um, we are seeing very much tangible evidence. The media has gotten a hold of it. The two weather services in Seville and Athens are broadcasting it widely, and people have gotten used to it. As a matter of fact, in Seville, they're even naming heat waves. So we had our first named heat wave. It had to reach a certain category, Zoe. They're, they're naming it in reverse. I don't know why they chose to do that, but it's okay with me. So heat wave Zoe has hit uh, Seville and Athens. 
Uh, in the states and in Wisconsin, we have our heat warning system ongoing since May 15th. I'm very proud of it. We have an incredible team effort with the University Alliance, Dane County, Milwaukee County, the Department of Health, the University of Wisconsin. I'm really, I'm the only non-Wisconsinite involved in all of this. And I'm really proud to be part of this group. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I know some of these people for over two years, although in our age of Zoom, I met them for the first time uh, in April when they invited me to the University of Wisconsin for a speech. So we all got to look at each other for the first time. I told them I was six foot eight and they got to see the real me, you know. But but in any case, it's a collaborative effort. Uh, the Weather Service is looking at it. We are looking at it. We have three University of Wisconsin graduate students who have volunteered. Two of them are PhD students and others a master's student to categorize and not to categorize, but to look at, they develop spreadsheets. They're looking every day at what we call, what the weather service calls, how many people, our, our system actually estimates uh, negative health outcome, how many people we expect to get sick or die. And then we're gonna compare it in the fall with real data. Uh, we'll see if we have to adjust our thresholds, whether we need to change everything. I mean, we have an actual algorithm for Madison and Milwaukee to determine what those weather conditions are when we expect people to get sick and die because we have all that data back we have mortality data back to 1985 for every county in the united states and we have meteorology data back to 1948 so we looked retrospectively at heat waves in madison and milwaukee and we developed our formula our algorithm that relates the weather with the mortality and now we're looking prospectively we can forecast up to five days in advance and actually the forecast of the National Weather Service forecast. And our website shows for the next five days, there's little bars, they're green if there's no danger, there's yellow if there's light danger, there's orange if heavier, and then red if we suggest that the Weather Service calls an excessive heat warning. And of course, they use that system as guidance they don't have to use it at all. It is up to them. They may have already predetermined that a warning should be called, but this is at least another tool in their toolbox that they could use, an added tool that deals with human health outcomes. That's what makes it so important because all their other tools are meteorologically based. A tool for human health outcomes to determine, you know what, we better call an excessive heat warning, even if our thresholds haven't been met exactly, our meteorology thresholds. So we have these great tools. Um, what other tools could uh, public institutions be developing or uh, making clear to the public that they're out there that can help us prepare for the increasing incidence of heat waves that, that we know are coming? You know, there have been these new ideas we've been hearing a lot about, like our urban chief heat officers, uh, the Biden administration's yeah. new online tool for dealing with extreme heat. Uh, are these helpful for people? Do you have other suggestions Do you feel that you feel like we should be uh, advancing? Everything is helpful. If there's a federal site on heat, it's helpful. I am just afraid it hasn't been advertised enough and people don't know even where to go to look at federal or even national weather service heat sites. So in my mind, we need to be local. And this is what this Wisconsin Health Network is all about. It is local. It is dealing at this point with Southern Wisconsin. We just had a call this morning about maybe we should expand to the whole state of Wisconsin, which maybe will happen after this pilot year. But what we think is most important is you could develop a system like mine, but if you don't have a good plan as to what to tell people to do in the heat, 
it's going to fail. Just saying there's an excessive heat warning is not going to save lives. Saying there's an excessive heat warning and the health department puts out guidelines that are made public on channels like yours, local channels that people listen to, that's when they're going to know. Websites and things of this kind. So you guys play an important role, the newspapers, the web, all of those things play an important role so people know what to do. And then what about the city themselves? Should they open air conditioned shelters? Should they open swimming pools? Some cities actually go door to door. They have volunteers that go to the poor vulnerable areas and go door to door to knock on the door of maybe elderly people or disadvantaged people to ask how they're doing and they will help them out. This is the most important part, what we call intervention, which goes beyond just the system development. In some ways, although it's complicated to make the system, I almost consider that the simple part. It's up to the city, the health department, the local agency, all kinds, the police, the fire, the utility companies. Some utility companies suspend disconnects when an excessive heat warning is called. We want them to be accurate. What does that mean? Let's say some poor person has not paid their utility bill and an excessive heat warning is called, they will not cut off their electricity or water. These are the most important things beyond even our system that has to be done. And it, I, I believe that federal initiatives are great, but it has to be dealt locally because each city reacts differently to heat. They don't all act the same way. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Dr. Larry Kalkstein, president of Applied Climatologists, Inc. And we've been talking about extreme heat here in Wisconsin and, and globally as well. We have a time to get one more call here in from Greg on the line and then maybe follow up a little bit before we're done uh, to talk about uh, heat and culture here in Wisconsin. So, Greg, go ahead. You're on A Public Affair. Thanks so much for this show. It's really, really uh, helpful. I, I Perhaps you've covered this already, but um, I'm, I'm always curious about the local uh, weather reports on the, on the local news stations. They don't seem to be addressing this um, in a systematic way, and I just wonder why not. Well, I think this is a problem throughout the country. Um, I think what has to happen again as part of a heat initiative plan, the stakeholders, the people who make decisions in the local area have to make sure that the media are well aware of the problems that are going on. But often that doesn't happen. I mean, the media have other things they have to do, but during a heat emergency, they have to do what, let's say they do down here in Southern Florida when a hurricane is approaching. Uh, I live in a place where we have had to have been evacuated twice because a hurricane was approaching. And before it came, the media were on constantly telling us what the problem is. I'm afraid with heat, the priorities are just not there because it is not a physically damaging event. So one of the things that we're talking about in the Wisconsin Health Network, Heat Health Network, is how to prioritize this more, even with the media. We are getting a lot of a time on the newspaper and like this kind of show as well to talk about things. But I think Greg is right. 
Whenever there is a heat wave, especially a really bad one, we need to prioritize more time to tell people what to do. And yes, that they are vulnerable. And yes, cancel a little league baseball game. It's dangerous to be doing that right now. Open all the public pools, open the shelters, tell people where the closest air conditioned shelter is. All of these things have to do, have to happen. Now, you realize more people die of heat where you live than where I live. Uh, the reason is that here everyone has air conditioning, even most poor people. Our urban structure is designed for heat. In other words, our buildings, I'm looking at my neighbor's homes, they are designed, they're not brick buildings with black tops. They are designed for heat. In Wisconsin, you're designed for cold. In Seattle, where many people die of the heat, believe it or not, it's designed for cold. So you have to tell people that they need to be more aware of the heat. And I think even in Wisconsin, we're working on it, but that hasn't quite happened. And that's why Greg is noticing what he is noticing. Thank you for the call, Greg. Yeah, Larry, what you're describing is uh, not only stretching us technologically and climatologically, but culturally, it sounds like, right? Um, that we have to make a shift between not just taking winter seriously, but be, uh, but also in places like Wisconsin, taking summer very, very seriously because heat, after all, as you've said, is the number one combined weather-related killer. Absolutely. Well, you know, winter, actually more people die in the winter than in the summer by about 10 to 15 percent because of infectious disease and agents. And we're all indoors and we're catching the flu and people can die of respiratory disease. And you throw COVID in on top of that and you have a real problem. But heat is different. It's an acute killer. So after a heat wave, you see 50 to 75 percent increase in mortality. And that's the problem. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Larry Kalkstein, President of Applied Climatologists. Thanks also to our first guest, Rodrigo Perez Ortega, staff writer for Science Magazine. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Chuck, producer, Rochelle, news director, Shali, for your help as well. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Thanks very much, Larry. Take care. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen. Listen and support it. Ha <laughs> ha.